This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Seawolf by Jack London. Chapter 10. My intimacy with Wolf Larsen increases, if by intimacy may be denoted those relations which exist between master and man, or better yet, between king and jester. I am to him no more than a toy, and he values me no more than a child values a toy. My function is to amuse, and so long as I amuse, all goes well. But let him become bored, or let him have one of his black moods come upon him, and at once I am relegated from cabin table to galley, while at the same time I am fortunate to escape with my life and a whole body. The loneliness of the man is slowly being borne in upon me. There is not a man aboard but hates or fears him, nor is there a man whom he does not despise. 
he seems consuming with the tremendous power that is in him, and that seems never to have found adequate expression in works. He is as Lucifer would be were that proud spirit banished to a society of soulless, Tomlinsonian ghosts. This loneliness is bad enough in itself, but to make it worse, he is oppressed by the primal melancholy of the race. Knowing him, I review the old Scandinavian myths with clearer understanding. The white-skinned, fair-haired savages who created that terrible pantheon were of the same fiber as he. The frivolity of the laughter-loving Latins is no part of him. When he laughs, it is from a humor that is nothing else than ferocious. But he laughs rarely. He is too often sad. And it is a sadness as deep-reaching as the roots of the race. It is the race heritage. The sadness which has made the race sober-minded, clean-lived, and fanatically moral and which, in this latter connection, has culminated among the English in the Reformed Church and Mrs. Brendan. In point of fact, the chief vent to this primal melancholy has been religion in its more agonizing forms. But the compensations of such religion are denied Wolf Larsen. His brutal materialism will not permit it. So, when his blue moods come on, nothing remains for him but to be devilish. Were he not so terrible a man, I could sometimes feel sorry for him, as instance three mornings ago, when I went into his stateroom to fill his water bottle and came unexpectedly upon him. He did not see me. His head was buried in his hands and his shoulders were heaving convulsively as with sobs. He seemed torn by some mighty grief. As I softly withdrew, I could hear him groaning, God, God, God. Not that he was calling upon God, it was a mere expletive, but it came from his soul. At dinner, he asked the hunters for a remedy for headache, and by evening, strong man that he was, he was half blind and reeling about the cabin. I've never been sick in my life, Hump, he said as I guided him to his room. Nor did I ever have a headache, except the time my head was healing after having been laid open for six inches by a capstan bar. For three days the blinding headache lasted, and he suffered as wild animals suffer, as it seemed the way on ship to suffer, without sympathy, utterly alone. This morning, however, on entering his stateroom to make the bed and put things in order, I found him well and hard at work. Table and bunk were littered with designs and calculations. On a large transparent sheet, compass and square in hand, he was copying what appeared to be a scale of some sort or other. Hello, Hump, he greeted me genially. I am just finishing the finishing touches. Want to see it work? But what is it? I asked. A labor-saving device for mariners. Navigation reduced to kindergarten simplicity, he answered gaily. From today, a child will be able to navigate a ship. No more long-winded calculations. All you need is one star in the sky on a dirty night 
to know instantly where you are. Look, I placed a transparent scale on this star map, revolving the scale on the North Pole. On the scale, I've worked out the circles of altitude and the lines of bearing. All I do is put it on a star, revolve the scale till it is opposite those figures on the map underneath, and presto, there you are, the ship's precise location. There was a ring of triumph in his voice, and his eyes, clear blue this morning as the sea, were sparkling with light. You must be well up in mathematics, I said. Where did you go to school? Never saw the inside of one. Worse luck, was the answer. I had to dig it out for myself. And why do you think I have made this thing? He demanded abruptly. Dreaming to leave footprints on the sands of time? He laughed one of his terrible mocking laughs. Ha ha ha, not at all. To get it patented, to make money from it, to revel in piggishness with all night in, while other men do the work. That's my purpose. Also, I have enjoyed working it out. The creative joy, I murmured. I guess that's what it ought to be called, which is another way of expressing the joy of life in that it is alive. The triumph of movement over matter, of the quick over the dead, the pride of the yeast, because it is yeast and crawls. I threw up my hands with helpless disapproval at his inveterate materialism and went about making the bed. He continued copying lines and figures upon the transparent scale. It was a task requiring the utmost nicety and precision, and I could not but admire the way he tempered his strength to the fineness and delicacy of the need. When I had finished the bed, I caught myself looking at him in a fascinated sort of way. He was certainly a handsome man, beautiful in a masculine sense. And again, with never-failing wonder, I remarked the total lack of viciousness or wickedness or sinfulness in his face. It was the face, I am convinced, of a man who did no wrong. And by this I do not wish to be misunderstood. What I mean is that it was the face of a man who either did nothing contrary to the dictates of his conscience or who had no conscience. I am inclined to the latter way of accounting for it. It was a magnificent atavism, a man so purely primitive that he was of the type that came into the world before the development of the moral nature. He was not immoral, but merely unmoral. As I have said, in the masculine sense, his was a beautiful face, smooth-shaven, every line was distinct, and it was cut as clear and sharp as a cameo. While sea and sun had tanned the naturally fair skin to a dark bronze which bespoke struggle and battle, and added both to his savagery and his beauty. The lips were full, yet possessed of the firmness, almost harshness, which is characteristic of thin lips. The set of his mouth, his chin, his jaw, was likewise firm or harsh, with all the fierceness and indomitableness of the male. The nose also, it was the nose of a being born to conquer and command. It just hinted of the eagle beak. It might have been Grecian, it might have been Roman, only it was a shade too massive for the one, a shade too delicate for the other. 
and while the whole face was the incarnation of fierceness and strength, the primal melancholy from which he suffered seemed to greaten the lines of mouth and eye and brow, seemed to give a largeness and completeness which otherwise the face would have lacked. And so I caught myself standing idly and studying it. I cannot say how greatly the man had come to interest me. Who was he? What was he? How had he happened to be? All power seemed his, all potentialities. Why then was he no more than the obscure master of a seal-hunting schooner with a reputation for frightful brutality amongst the men who hunted seals? My curiosity burst from me in a flood of speech. Why is it that you have not done great things in this world? With the power that is yours, you might have risen to any height. Unpossessed of conscience or moral instinct, you might have mastered the world broken it to your hand. And yet here you are at the top of your life, where diminishing and dying begin, living an obscure and sordid existence hunting sea animals for the satisfaction of woman's vanity and love of decoration, reveling in a piggishness, to use your own words, which is anything and everything except splendid. Why, with all that wonderful strength, have you not done something? There was nothing to stop you, nothing that could stop you. What was wrong? Did you lack ambition? Did you fall under temptation? What was the matter? What was the matter? He had lifted his eyes to me at the commencement of my hours and followed me complacently until I had done and stood before him breathless and dismayed. He waited a moment as though seeking where to begin and then said, Up! Do you know the parable of the sower who went forth to sow? If you will remember, some of the seed fell upon stony places where there was not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth, and when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. Well, I said, well, he queried, half petulantly. It was not well. I was one of those seeds. He dropped his head to the scale and resumed the copying. I finished my work and had opened the door to leave when he spoke to me. Hump, if you will look on the west coast of the map of Norway, you will see an indentation called Romsdal Fjord. I was born within a hundred miles of that stretch of but I was not born Norwegian. I am a Dane. My father and mother were Danes, and how they ever came to that bleak bite of land on the west coast, I do not know. I never heard. Outside of that, there is nothing mysterious. They were poor people and unlettered. They came of generations of poor unlettered people, peasants of the sea, who sowed their sons on the waves as has been their custom since time began. There is no more to tell. But there is, I objected. It is still obscure to me. What can I tell you? He demanded, with a recrudescence of fierceness. Of the meagerness of a child's life? Of fish diet and coarse living? Of going out with the boats from the time I could crawl? Of my brothers, who 
went away one by one to the deep sea farming and never came back? Of myself, unable to read or write, cabin boy at mature age of ten on the coastwise old country ships? Of the rough fare and rougher usage, where kicks and blows were bed and breakfast and took the place of speech? And fear and hatred and pain were my only soul experiences? I do not care to remember. A madness comes up in my brain even now as I think of it. But there were coastwise skippers I would have returned and killed when a man's strength came to me. Only the lines of my life were cast at the time in other places. I did return not long ago, but unfortunately the skippers were dead. All but one, a mate in the old days, a skipper when I met him, and when I left him, a cripple who would never walk again. But you who read Spencer and Darwin and have never seen the inside of a school, how did you learn to read and write? I queried. In the English merchant service, cabin boy at 12, ship's boy at 14, ordinary seaman at 16, Able seaman at seventeen, and cock of the foxhole. Infinite ambition and infinite loneliness, receiving neither help nor sympathy. I did it all for myself. Navigation, mathematics, science, literature, and why not? And of what use has it been? Master and owner of a ship at the top of my life, as you say, when I am beginning to diminish and die. Paltry, isn't it? And when the sun was up, I was scorched, and because I had no root, I withered away. But history tells of slaves who rose to the purple, I chided. And history tells of opportunities that came to the slaves who rose to the purple, he answered grimly. No man makes opportunity. All the great men ever did was to know it when it came to them. The Corsican knew. I have dreamed as greatly as the Corsican. I should have known the opportunity, but it never came. The thorns sprung up and choked me. And Hump, I can tell you that you know more about me than any living man except my own brother. And what is he? And where is he? Master of the steamship Macedonia, seal hunter, was the answer. We will meet him most probably on the Japan coast. Men call him Death Larson. Death Larson? I involuntarily cried. Is he like you? Hardly. He is the lump of an animal without any head. He has all my... my... Brutishness? I suggested. Yes. Thank you for the word. All my brutishness, but he can scarcely read or write. And he has never philosophized on life, I added. No. Wolf Larson answered with an indescribable air of sadness, and he is all the happier for leaving life alone. He is too busy living it to think about it. My mistake was in ever opening the books. End of chapter 10 Seawolf by Jack London, chapter 11 the ghost has attained the southernmost point of the arc she is describing across the Pacific and is already beginning to edge away to the west and north. Towards some lone island it is rumored where she will fill her water casks before proceeding to the season's hunt along the coast of Japan.
The hunters have experimented and practiced with their rifles and shotguns till they are satisfied, and the boat pullers and steerers have made their sprit sails, bound the oars and rowlocks in leather and sennit, so that they will make no noise when creeping on the seals, and put their boats in apple pie order, to use Leech's homely phrase. His arm, by the way, is healed nicely, though the scar will remain all his life. Thomas Mugridge lives in mortal fear of him, and is afraid to venture on deck after dark. There are two or three standing quarrels in the forecastle. Lewis tells me the gossip of the sailors finds its way aft, and that two of the telltales have been badly beaten by their mates. He shakes his head dubiously over the outlook for the man Johnson, who is boat puller in the same boat with him. Johnson has been guilty of speaking his mind too freely, and has collided two or three times with Wolf Larsen over the pronunciation of his name. Johansson, he thrashed on the amidship's deck the other night, since which time the mate has called him by his proper name. But of course it is out of the question that Johnson should thrash Wolf Larsen. Lewis has given me additional information about Death Larsen, which tallies with the captain's brief description. We may expect to meet Death Larsen on the Japan coast. And look out for squalls, is Lewis's prophecy, for they hate one another like the wolf works they are. Death Larsen is in command of the only sealing steamer in the fleet, the Macedonia, which carries fourteen boats, whereas the rest of the schooners carry only six. There is wild talk of cannon aboard, and of strange raids and expeditions she may make, ranging from opium smuggling into the States, and arms smuggling into China, to blackbirding and open piracy. Yet I cannot but believe, for I have never yet caught him in a lie, while he has a cyclopedic knowledge of sealing and the men of the sealed fleets. As it is forward and in the galley, so it is in the steerage and aft on this veritable hell-ship. Men fight and struggle ferociously for one another's lives. The hunters are looking for a shooting scrape at any moment between Smoke and Henderson, whose old quarrel has not healed, while Wolf Larsen says positively that he will kill the survivor of the affair if such affair comes off. He frankly states that the position he takes is based on no moral grounds, that all the hunters could kill and eat one another so far as he is concerned, were it not that he needs them alive for the hunting. If they will only hold their hands until the season is over, he promises them a royal carnival when all grudges can be settled and the survivors may toss the non-survivors overboard and arrange a story as to how the missing men were lost at sea. I think even the hunters are appalled at his cold-heartedness. Wicked men though they be, they are certainly very much afraid of him. Thomas Mugridge is cur-like in his subjection to me, while I go about in secret dread of him. His is the courage of fear. 
a strange thing I know well of myself, and at any moment it may master the fear and impel him to the taking of my life. My knee is much better, though it often aches for long periods, and the stiffness is gradually leaving the arm which Wolf Larsen squeezed. Otherwise, I am in splendid condition. Feel that I am in splendid condition. My muscles are growing harder and increasing in size. My hands, however, are a spectacle for grief. They have a parboiled appearance, are afflicted with hangnails, while their nails are broken and discolored, and the edges of the quick seem to be assuming a fungoid sort of growth. Also, I am suffering from boils due to the diet, most likely, for I was never afflicted in this matter before. I was amused a couple of evenings back by seeing Wolf Larsen reading the Bible, a copy of which, after the futile search for one at the beginning of the voyage, had been found in the dead mate's sea chest. I wondered what Wolf Larsen could get from it and he read aloud to me from Ecclesiastes. I could imagine he was speaking the thoughts of his own mind as he read to me, and his voice reverberating deeply and mournfully in the confined cabin charmed and held me. He may be uneducated, but he certainly knows how to express the significance of the written word. I can hear him now, as I shall always hear him the primal melancholy vibrant in his voice as he read. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments, and that of all sorts. So I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom returned with me. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. All things come alike to all. There is one event, to the righteous and to the wicked to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yea, also, the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun.
There you have it, Hump, he said, closing the book upon his finger and looking up at me. The preacher who was the king over Israel in Jerusalem thought as I think. You call me a pessimist. Is not this pessimism of the blackest? All is vanity and vexation of spirit. There is no profit under the sun. There is one event unto all. To the fool and the wise, the clean and the unclean, the sinner and the saint. And that event is death and an evil thing, he says. For the preacher loved life and did not want to die, saying, For a living dog is better than a dead lion. He preferred the vanity and vexation to the silence and unmovableness of the grave, and so do I. To crawl is piggish, but to not crawl, to be as the clod and rock is loathsome to contemplate. It is loathsome to the life that is in me, the very essence of which is movement, the power of movement and the consciousness of the power of movement. Life itself is unsatisfaction. But to look ahead to death is greater unsatisfaction. You were worse off than Omar, I said. He, at least, after the customary agonizing of youth, found content and made of his materialism a joyous thing. Who is Omar? Wolf Larsen asked, and I did no more work that day, nor the next, nor the next. In his random reading, he had never chanced upon the Rubiat as it was to him like a great find of treasure. Much I remembered, possibly two-thirds of the quatrains, and I managed to piece out the remainder without difficulty. We talked for hours over single stanzas, and I found him reading into them a wail of regret and a rebellion which, for the life of me, I could not discover myself. Possibly I recited with a certain joyous lilt which was my own, for his memory was good, and at a second rendering, very often the first, he made a quatrain his own. He recited the same lines and invested them with an unrest and passionate revolt that was well-nigh convincing. I was interested as to which quatrain he would like best, and was not surprised when he hit upon the one born of an instant's irritability, and quite at variance with the Persian's complacent philosophy and genial code of life. What without asking, hither hurried whence, and without asking, whither hurried hence. Oh, many a cup of this forbidden wine must drown the memory of that insolence. Great, Wolf Larsen cried, great, that's the keynote, insolence. He could not have used a better word. In vain I objected and denied. He deluged me, overwhelmed me with argument. It's not the nature of life to be otherwise. Life, when it knows that it must cease living, will always rebel. It cannot help itself. The preacher found life and the works of life all a vanity and vexation, an evil thing. But death, the ceasing to be able to be vain and vexed, he found an eviler thing. Through chapter after chapter he is worried by the one event that cometh to all alike. So Omar, so I, so you, even you, for you rebelled against dying when Cookie sharpened a knife for you. You were afraid to die. The life that was in you, that composes you, that is greater than you, did not want to die. 
You have talked of the instinct of immortality. I talk of the instinct of life, which is to live, and which, when death looms near and large, masters the instinct, so-called, of immortality. It mastered it in you. You cannot deny it, because a crazy cockney cook sharpened a knife. You are afraid of him now. You are afraid of me. You cannot deny it. If I should catch you by the throat thus, his hand was about my throat and my breath was shut off, and began to press the life out of you thus and thus, your instinct of immortality will go glimmering, and your instinct of life, which is longing for life, will flutter up, and you will struggle to save yourself. Huh? I see the fear of death in your eyes. You beat the air with your arms. You exert all your puny strength to struggle to live. Your hand is clutching my arm. Lightly it feels as a butterfly resting there. Your chest is heaving, your tongue protruding, your skin turning dark, your eyes swimming. To live, to live, to live, you are crying. And you are crying to live here and now, not hereafter. You doubt your immortality, huh? Ha <laughs> ha, you are not sure of it. You won't chance it. This life only, you are certain, is real. Ah, uh, it is growing dark and darker. It is the darkness of death. The ceasing to be, the ceasing to feel, the ceasing to move, that is gathering about you, descending upon you, rising around you. Your eyes are becoming set. They are glazing. My voice sounds faint and far. You cannot see my face. And still you struggle in my grip. You kick with your legs. Your body draws itself up in knots like a snake's. Your chest heaves and strains. To live. To live. To live. I heard no more. Consciousness was blotted out by the darkness he had so graphically described. And when I came to myself, I was lying on the floor, and he was smoking a cigar and regarding me thoughtfully with that old familiar light of curiosity in his eyes. Well, have I convinced you? He demanded. Here, take a drink of this. I want to ask you some questions. I rolled my head negatively on the floor. Your arguments are too, uh, forcible, I managed to articulate at cost of great pain to my aching throat. You'll be all right in half an hour, he assured me, and I promise I won't use any more physical demonstrations. Get up now. You can sit on a chair. And toy that I was of this monster, the discussion of Omar and the preacher was resumed, and half the night we sat up over it. End of chapter 11. Sea Wolf by Jack London, Chapter 12. The last 24 hours witnessed a carnival of brutality. From cabin to forecast, it seems to have broken out like a contagion. I scarcely know where to begin. Wolf Larsen was really the cause of it. The relations among the men, strained and made tense by feuds, quarrels, and grudges, were in a state of unstable equilibrium and evil passions flared up in flame like prairie grass. Thomas Mugridge is a sneak, a spy, an informer. He has been attempting to curry favor and reinstate himself in the good graces of the captain, 
by carrying tales of the men forward. He it was, I know, that carried some of Johnson's hasty talk to Wolf Larsen. Johnson, it seems, bought a suit of oilskins from the slop chest and found them to be of greatly inferior quality. Nor was he slow in advertising the fact. The slop chest is a sort of miniature dry goods store which is carried by all sealing schooners and which is stocked with articles peculiar to the needs of the sailors. Whatever a sailor purchases is taken from his subsequent earnings on the sealing ground. For as it is with the hunters, so it is with the boat pullers and steerers. In the place of wages, they receive a lay, a rate of so much per skin for every skin captured in their particular boat. But of Johnson's grumbling at the slop chest, I knew nothing, so that what I witnessed came with a shock of sudden surprise. I had just finished sweeping the cabin and had been inveigled by Wolf Larsen into a discussion of Hamlet, his favorite Shakespearean character, when Johansson descended the companion stairs followed by Johnson. The latter's cap came off after the custom of the sea, and he stood respectfully in the center of the cabin, swaying heavily and uneasily to the roll of the schooner and facing the captain. Shut the doors and draw the slide. Wolf Larsen said to me. As I obeyed, I noticed an anxious light come into Johnson's eyes, but I did not dream of the cause. I did not dream of what was to occur until it did occur, but he knew from the very first what was coming, and awaited it bravely, and in his action I found complete refutation of all Wolf Larsen's materialism. The sailor Johnson was swayed by idea, by principle, and truth and sincerity. He was right, he knew he was right, and he was unafraid. He would die for the right if needs be. He would be true to himself, sincere with his soul. And in this was portrayed the victory of the spirit over the flesh, the indomitability and moral grandeur of the soul that knows no restriction and rises above time and space and matter with the surety and invincibleness born of nothing else than eternity and immortality. But to return. I noticed the anxious light in Johnson's eyes, but mistook it for the native shyness and embarrassment of the man. The mate, Johansson, stood away several feet to the side of him and fully three yards in front of him sat Wolf Larsen on one of the pivotal cabin chairs. An appreciable pause fell after I had closed the doors and drawn the slide, a pause that must have lasted fully a minute. It was broken by Wolf Larsen. Johnson, he began. My name is Johnson, sir, the sailor boldly corrected. Well, Johnson then, damn you! Can you guess why I have sent for you? Yes or no, sir, was the slow reply. My work is done well. The mate knows that, and you know it, sir. So there cannot be any complaint. And is that all? Wolf Larsen queried, his voice soft and low and purring. I know you have it in for me, Johnson continued with his unalterable and ponderous slowness. You do not like me. You... You... Go on, Wolf Larsen prompted, 
Don't be afraid of my feelings. I am not afraid, the sailor retorted, a slight angry flush rising through his sunburn. If I speak not fast, it is because I have not been from the old country as long as you. You do not like me because I am too much of a man. That is why, sir. You are too much of a man for ship discipline, if that is what you mean. And if you know what I mean, was Wolf Larsen's retort. I know English, and I know what you mean, sir, Johnson answered, his flush deepening at the slur on his knowledge of the English language. Johnson, Wolf Larsen said with an air of dismissing all that had gone before as introductory to the main business in hand, I understand you're not quite satisfied with those oilskins. No, I am not. They are no good, sir. And you've been shooting off your mouth about them. I say what I think, sir. The sailor answered courageously, not failing at the same time in ship courtesy, which demanded that sir be appended to each speech he made. It was at this moment that I chanced to glance at Johansson. His big fists were clenching and unclenching, and his face was positively fiendish. So malignantly did he look at Johnson. I noticed a black discoloration still faintly visible under Johansson's eye, a mark of the thrashing he had received a few nights before from the sailor. For the first time, I began to divine that something terrible was about to be enacted. What? I could not imagine. Do you know what happens to men who say what you've said about my slop chest and me? Wolf Larsen was demanding. I know, sir, was the answer. What? Wolf Larsen demanded, sharply and imperatively. What you and the mate there are going to do to me, sir. Look at him, Hump, Wolf Larsen said to me. Look at this bit of animated dust, this aggregation of matter that moves and breathes and defies me and thoroughly believes itself to be compounded of something good that is impressed with certain human fictions such as righteousness and honesty and that will live up to them in spite of all personal discomforts and menaces. What do you think of him, Hump? What do you think of him? I think that he is a better man than you are, I answered, impelled somehow with a desire to draw upon myself a portion of the wrath I felt was about to break upon his head. His human fictions, as you choose to call them, make for nobility and manhood. You have no fictions, no dreams, no ideals. You are a pauper. He nodded his head with a savage pleasantness. Quite true, Hump. Quite true. I have no fictions that make for nobility and manhood. A living dog is better than a dead lion, say I with the preacher. My only doctrine is the doctrine of expediency, and it makes for surviving. This bit of the ferment we call Johnson, when he is no longer a bit of the ferment, only dust and ashes, will have no more nobility than any dust and ashes while I shall still be alive and roaring. Do you know what I am going to do? He questioned. I shook my head. Well, I am going to exercise my prerogative of roaring and show you how fares nobility. Watch me. 
Three yards away from Johnson he was, and sitting down. Nine feet. And yet he left the chair in full leap without first gaining a standing position. He left the chair just as he sat in it, squarely springing from the sitting posture like a wild animal, a tiger, and like a tiger covered the intervening space. It was an avalanche of fury that Johnson strove vainly to fend off. He threw one arm down to protect the stomach, the other arm up to protect the head, but Wolf Larsen's fist drove midway between on the chest with a crushing, resounding impact. Johnson's breath, suddenly expelled, shot from his mouth, and as suddenly checked with the forced, audible expiration of a man wielding an axe. He almost fell backward and swayed from side to side in an effort to recover his balance. I cannot give the further particulars of the horrible scene that followed. It was too revolting. It turns me sick even now when I think of it. Johnson fought bravely enough, but he was no match for Wolf Larsen, much less for Wolf Larsen and the mate. It was frightful. I had not imagined a human being could endure so much and still live and struggle on. And struggle on, Johnson did. Of course, there was no hope for him, not the slightest, and he knew it as well as I. But by the manhood that was in him, he could not cease from fighting for that manhood. It was too much for me to witness. I felt that I should lose my mind, and I ran up the companion stairs to open the doors and escape on deck. But Wolf Larsen, leaving his victim for the moment, and with one of his tremendous springs, gained my side and flung me into the far corner of the cabin. The phenomena of life, hump, he girded at me. Stay and watch it. You may gather data on the immortality of the soul. Besides, you know, we can't hurt Johnson's soul. It's only the fleeting form we may demolish. It seemed centuries. Possibly it was no more than ten minutes that the beating continued. Wolf Larsen and Johansson were all about the poor fellow. They struck him with their fists, kicked him with their heavy shoes, knocked him down, and dragged him to his feet to knock him down again. His eyes were blinded so that he could not see, and the blood running from ears and nose and mouth turned the cabin into a shambles. And when he could no longer rise, they still continued to beat and kick him where he lay. Easy, Johansson. Easy as she goes, Wolf Larsen finally said. But the beast in the mate was up and rampant, and Wolf Larsen was compelled to brush him away with a backhanded sweep of the arm. Gentle enough, apparently, but which hurled Johansson back like a cork, driving his head against the wall with a crash. He fell to the floor, half stunned for the moment, breathing heavily and blinking his eyes in a stupid sort of way. Jerk open the doors, hump, I was commanded. I obeyed, and the two brutes picked up the senseless man like a sack of rubbish and hove him clear up the companion stairs through the narrow doorway and out on deck. The blood from his nose gushed in a scarlet stream over the feet of the helmsman, who was none other than Lewis, his boatmate. But Lewis took and gave a spoke and gazed imperturbably into the binnacle. Not so was the conduct of George Leach, the erstwhile cabin boy. 
fore and aft there was nothing that could have surprised us more than his consequent behavior. He it was that came up on the poop without orders and dragged Johnson forward, where he set about dressing his wounds as well as he could and making him comfortable. Johnson, as Johnson, was unrecognizable. And not only that, for his features, as human features, at all, were unrecognizable. So discolored and swollen had they become in the few minutes which had elapsed between the beginning of the beating and the dragging forward of the body. But of Leach's behavior. By the time I had finished cleansing the cabin, he had taken care of Johnson. I had come up on deck for a breath of fresh air and to try to get some repose for my overwrought nerves. Wolf Larsen was smoking a cigar and examining the patent log which the ghost usually towed astern, but which had been hauled in for some purpose. Suddenly Leach's voice came to my ears. It was tense and hoarse with an overmastering rage. I turned and saw him standing just beneath the break of the poop, on the port side of the galley. His face was convulsed and white, his eyes were flashing, his clenched fists raised overhead. May God damn your soul to hell, Wolf Larsen. Only hell's too good for you, you coward, you murderer, you pig, was his opening salutation. I was thunderstruck. I looked for his instant annihilation, but it was not Wolf Larsen's whim to annihilate him. He sauntered slowly forward to the break of the poop, and, leaning his elbow on the corner of the cabin, gazed down thoughtfully and curiously at the excited and the boy indicted Wolf Larsen as he had never been indicted before. The sailors assembled in a fearful group just outside the forecastle scuttle and watched and listened. The hunters piled pell-mell out of the steerage, but as Leech's tirade continued, I saw that there was no levity in their faces. Even they were frightened, not at the boy's terrible words, but at his terrible audacity. It did not seem possible that any living creature could thus beard Wolf Larsen in his teeth. I know for myself that I was shocked into admiration of the boy, and I saw in him the splendid invincibleness of immortality rising above the flesh and the fears of the flesh, as in the prophets of old, to condemn unrighteousness. And such condemnation, he held forth Wolf Larsen's soul naked to the scorn. He rained upon it curses from God and high heaven, and withered it with a heat of invective that savored of a medieval excommunication of the Catholic Church. He ran the gamut of denunciation, rising to heights of wrath that were sublime and almost godlike, and from sheer exhaustion, sinking to the vilest and most indecent abuse. His rage was a madness, his lips were flecked with a soapy froth, and sometimes he choked and gurgled and became inarticulate. And through it all, calm and impassive, leaning on his elbow and gazing down, Wolf Larsen seemed lost in a great curiosity. This wild stirring of yeasty life, this terrific revolt and defiance of matter that moved, perplexed and interested him. Each moment I looked, and everybody looked for him to leap upon the boy and destroy him. But it was not his whim. His cigar went out, and he continued to gaze silently and curiously. 
Leech had worked himself into an ecstasy of impotent rage. Pig! 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 He was reiterating at the top of his lungs. Why don't you come down and kill me, you murderer? You can't do it. I ain't afraid. There's no one to stop you. Damn sight better dead and out of your reach than alive and in your clutches. Come on, you coward. Kill me. Kill me. Kill me. It was at this stage that Thomas Mugridge's erratic soul brought him into the scene. He had been listening at the galley door, but he now came out, ostensibly to fling some scraps over the side, but obviously to see the killing he was certain would take place. He smirked greasily up into the face of Wolf Larsen, who seemed not to see him. But the Cockney was unabashed, though mad, stark mad. He turned to Leech, saying, Such language! Shocking! Leech's rage was no longer impotent. Here at last was something ready to hand, and for the first time since this stabbing, the Cockney had appeared outside the galley without his knife. The words had barely left his mouth when he was knocked down by Leech. Three times he struggled to his feet, striving to gain the galley, and each time was knocked down. Oh, Lord, he cried. Help, help. Take him away, can't you? Take him away. The hunters laughed from sheer relief. Tragedy had dwindled. The farce had begun. The sailors now crowded boldly aft, grinning and shuffling, to watch the pummeling of the hated cockney. And even I felt a great joy surge up within me. I confess that I delighted in this beating Leech was giving to Thomas Mugridge, though it was as terrible almost as the one Mugridge had caused to be given to Johnson. But the expression of Wolf Larsen's face never changed. He did not change his position either, but continued to gaze down with a great curiosity. For all his pragmatic certitude, it seemed as if he watched the play and movement of life in the hope of discovering something more about it, of discerning in its maddest writhings a something which had hitherto escaped him, the key to its mystery, as it were, which would make all clear and plain. But the beating, it was quite similar to the one I had witnessed in the cabin. The cockney strove in vain to protect himself from the infuriated boy, and in vain he strove to gain the shelter of the cabin. He rolled toward it, groveled toward it, fell toward it when he was knocked down, but blow followed blow with bewildering rapidity. He was knocked about like a shuttlecock, until finally, like Johnson, he was beaten and kicked as he lay helpless on the deck. And no one interfered. Leech could have killed him, but having evidently filled the measure of his vengeance, he drew away from his prostrate foe, who was whimpering and wailing in a puppyish sort of way, and walked forward. But these two affairs were only the opening events of the day's program. In the afternoon, Smoke and Henderson fell foul of each other, and a fusillade of shots came up from the steerage, followed by a stampede of the other four hunters for the deck. A column of thick, acrid smoke, the kind always made by black powder, 
was arising through the open companionway, and down through it leaped Wolf Larsen. The sound of blows and scuffling came to our ears. Both men were wounded, and he was thrashing them both for having disobeyed his orders and crippled themselves in advance of the hunting season. In fact, they were badly wounded, and, having thrashed them, he proceeded to operate upon them in a rough surgical fashion and to dress their wounds. I served as assistant while he probed and cleansed the passages made by the bullets, and I saw the two men endure his crude surgery without anesthetics and with no more to uphold them than a stiff tumbler of whiskey. Then, in the first dog watch, trouble came to a head in the forecastle. It took its rise out of the tittle-tattle and tail-bearing which had been the cause of Johnson's beating, and from the noise we heard, and from the sight of the bruised men next day, it was patent that half the forecastle had soundly drubbed the other half. The second dog watch and the day were wound up by a fight between Johansson and the lean, Yankee-looking hunter Latimer. It was caused by remarks of Latimer's concerning the noises made by the mate in his sleep. And though Johansson was whipped, he kept the steerage awake for the rest of the night while he blissfully slumbered and fought the fight over and over again. As for myself, I was oppressed with nightmare. The day had been like some horrible dream. Brutality had followed brutality, and flaming passions and cold-blooded cruelty had driven men to seek one another's lives and to strive to hurt and maim and destroy. My nerves were shocked. My mind itself was shocked. All my days had been passed in comparative ignorance of the animality of men. In fact, I had known life only in its intellectual phases. Brutality I had experienced, but it was the brutality of the intellect, the cutting sarcasm of Charlie Furuseth, the cruel epigrams and occasional harsh witticisms of the fellows at the Bibliot and the NASA remarks of some of the professors during my undergraduate days. But that was all. But that men should wreak their anger on others by the bruising of the flesh and the letting of blood was something strangely and fearfully new to me. Not for nothing had I been called Sissy Van Waden, I thought, as I tossed restlessly on my bunk between one nightmare and another. And it seemed to me that my innocence of the realities of life had been complete indeed. I laughed bitterly to myself and seemed to find in Wolf Larsen's forbidding philosophy a more adequate explanation of life than I found in my own. And I was frightened when I became conscious of the trend of my thought. The continual brutality around me was degenerative in its effect. It bid fair to destroy for me all that was best and brightest in life. My reason dictated that the beating Thomas Mugridge had received was an ill thing, and yet for the life of me I could not prevent my soul joying in it. And even while I was oppressed by the enormity of my sin, for sin it was, I chuckled with an insane delight. I was no longer Humphrey Van Waden. I was Hump cabin boy on the schooner Ghost. Wolf Larsen was my captain, 
Thomas Muggridge and the rest were my companions, and I was receiving repeated impresses from the die which had stamped them all. End of chapter 12